Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Thanks, Brother Ray. That's one of my favorite hymns. I love that hymn. And good afternoon, brethren. Um, so wonderful to see you, Augustina. <laughs> it's amazing. I met Augustina maybe over a year ago uh, when I was uh, going across Canada. I met her in Alberta where she lived at the time, and she was doing some work for the government, and a very fascinating story, very fascinating lady, so looking forward to catching up later, and uh, wonderful to see you, Gary. Uh, As soon as I saw your face, I remembered the debate, and uh, what struck me uh, about you was the question that you asked, Uh, the, the timing of the question and the piercing nature of the question. I don't think the imam fully understood how piercing and devastating that question was, and so it's wonderful to uh, have you with us today. This week, brethren, um, in the news, I'm sure all of you are familiar with the Women's March that took place a week ago today, in protest to the election of Donald Trump, or the the inauguration of Donald Trump, this march took place in every continent all seven continents, there were 600 marches. And so as I'm watching the news this week, I'm scratching my head and I'm saying, how is it that in America, a democracy, following the democratic process, Donald Trump is elected based on the democratic process, and countries all around the world are protesting. And Americans are joining in with this protest. I don't know if you have an answer to this, but I found it absolutely puzzling. And it brings to mind, if you turn with me to Revelation 20, whether you agree with Donald Trump or not, America has a process, and they're following that process. Just go back one slide for me. Revelation 20 and verse 3 says this, that Satan would be cast into the bottomless pit and, sh- and shut up, and a seal will be set upon him. Notice what will happen when he's, when he's shut up, that he should deceive the nations no more. So we're not here yet. That means he's still active. That means he's still deceiving the nations. So if we go to the next slide. So we see this unanimity around the world where Donald Trump has to be stopped. They had a democratic election and he was voted into office. Four years later, they can vote again. And yet around the world, there's this incredible protest. And Pastor Murray quoted a verse last week And we're looking forward to his second part today. In 2 Samuel 15, turn with me there, because I think this really sums up what's happening in our world today. 2 Samuel chapter 15. And he quoted, or he was sort of talking about what happened with Absalom, but look at verse 10, 2 Samuel 15 and verse 10. Uh, Absalom was David's son and uh, was trying to overthrow his father and take over the throne. 
And verse 10, but Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom reigns in Hebron. So he had his designs on the throne. He wanted to overthrow his father and take over the throne. And so he had a conspiracy in in play. But notice in verse 11, and with Absalom went 200 men out of Jerusalem. So he he had a whole crowd behind him, 200 men out of Jerusalem that were called, and they went in their simplicity, they not knowing anything. So these men who supported Absalom didn't really understand what was going on. They were just caught up and they were being utilized. They were being treated like puppets. And that's what's happening today. Satan deceives the whole world. And these people are so, when I'm looking at the footage, they are so immersed in this cause. And they're so passionate about what they're standing for. And it's worldwide, every continent, 600 marches. And they have no clue what they're doing. Most of them. They're like these 200 men that were with Absalom. Absalom knows exactly what he's doing. These 200 men, they're just sort of, they think they're doing what's right, but they have no clue what they're involved in. What I want to do for the sermon today, you you might, you might think it has nothing to do with it, but I want to explore the criticality of the marriage bond. And I think when we were done, you'll see that it has everything to do with what's going on in our world today. In terms of structure, first, I want to examine the root cause of the chaos that we're seeing in our society today. And it's worldwide. There's there's this chaotic rhythm that's engulfing the whole world. In fact, the average person today who has no knowledge of God, no knowledge of prophecy, they know something is wrong. This is unprecedented. We've never seen this before. And it's not good. So first, let's examine the root cause of the chaos that we see in our society. Then I want to examine the marriage bond as the solution. And then finally, how should our understanding of marriage inform our character and how we operate within the church and within the world? Next slide, please. These women are protesting Donald Trump. Within 24 hours of his inauguration, around the world, women are protesting. He's a dictator. They have to insist on their rights. Their uterus matters. And and this is, I, I can't even repeat some of the vulgarity. With their little children, their daughters dressed up as genitalia. I mean, what's going on? Yet, At the same time, we have Islamic supremacists enslaving women for sexual use. But that's okay. We we don't see worldwide protest when women are being enslaved for sexual perversion and sexual... These women basically commit suicide. They're so destroyed. It's soul-destroying what they're being subjected to. Silence. That's okay. For 20 years, little girls in Rotherham, England, 
were being kidnapped and gang raped. And when this came out, silence. Yet a, a, a democratic nation, through the democratic process, elects a man that, they, that the majority want to be president, and boom, around the world, this massive protest. Women's rights. Under Sharia law, wives can be beaten. A woman's testimony is only worth half of a man's. If a woman is raped and she cannot produce two male witnesses or four female witnesses, then she's to be stoned to death for adultery. So women are being raped all the time in Islamic countries. Silence. It's okay to have sexual intercourse with a girl, a small girl. Husbands can divorce their wives just by saying, I divorce you three times and plunge the woman into poverty. When she has to turn to prostitution to support herself, if she's caught, she's stoned to death. She can't leave home without a male. When she does leave home, she can only show her eyes. If she's going to be in the presence of a man that's not her husband, the only way she can do that is if she breastfeeds him ten times. Then it's okay. This is Sharia law. When the woman dies, if the man chooses to, he can have intercourse with the dead body because it's his property. And, of course, raping female uh, captives is encouraged. It's not just permissible, it's encouraged. Women are silent. Not only silent, they're actually joining forces with Islam against Donald Trump. What's going on? Is is it just me, or is this nonsensical? Is it it bizarre? I I hate to say this, but this week I witnessed... A woman in Saudi Arabia, accused by her husband of some false accusation, dragged into the middle of the street in the middle of the day, had her head chopped off. Where are the women? What happened to women's rights? Why why is this okay? Why is there silence? And Donald Trump said something 12 years ago, which obviously shows poor character. But because of this statement... All around the world, they're up in arms. Let's look at the next slide. Women of the world unite. Does it sound familiar? Have we ever heard a slogan like this before? What does it remind you of? Have you heard anything like this before? I think Daniel would know. Okay, but there is a slogan, somebody of the world unite. What was that? Workers of the world, unite. Now we have women of the world, unite. Could there be an, a link here with communism? Let's look. Take a look. Next slide. George Orwell was, he wrote 1984 and 1948, warning about the encroachment of communism and what this totalitarian dictatorship will do to us. And he nailed it. 1984 explains what's going on in our society today. And if you just look at some of these quotes, it shows you how... He wrote this book while he was dying as a warning to the world. 
to say, this is coming. And he was dealing with communism. We're dealing with the same thing today. And where we're heading is this totalitarian dictatorship that all the world is going to celebrate and welcome in their deception. Look at the next slide. This woman, I don't know if you know her, Linda, Linda Sarsour, she is one of the organizers of the Women's March. And she's all about Sharia law. She is all about bringing Sharia law to America. And she is one of the organizers of the Women's March. So while the women are out there saying, we want women's rights, she wants them to be under Sharia law. So they have no clue what they're doing. You see her here with Bernie Sanders. And you just wonder, how is it that the left is in this alliance with Islam? What's going on here? In our country, Justin Trudeau is the keynote speaker at the Islamic uh, revival, reviving the Islamic spirit conference. How is the left in alliance with Islam? When Islam means no good for Western civilization, Islam means the destruction of Western civilization. Let's see if we can unpack this. Let's go to the next slide. Where we begin is World War I. To understand what's going on today, we have to go back to World War I. Before World War I, we had this gentleman, Karl Marx. Everybody's heard of him, who came up with this theory that he called communism. And he came up with it because the capitalists were exploiting the proletariat. So the bourgeoisie were exploiting the proletariat, the workers. And he hated it. And so he came up with this methodology or this, this approach where everybody would be equal and wealth would be distributed equally. Problem is, he was a complete hypocrite. This man spent money like crazy, borrowed money from everybody and never paid it back, exploited his family just for money. And while he says that, you know, workers must be treated equally, he had a maid, never paid her. She was his slave. Not only that, not to add insult to injury, he impregnated her and she had his child. So workers of the world unite. We mustn't exploit workers while he's exploiting his maid and basically made a slave out of her. Anyway, his, his intellect was so profound, and he came up with this communist theory that it took off. Many people embraced it, and they were waiting for a war. They said basically when Europe goes to war, the workers of the world will unite, and they will resist the bourgeoisie. And it didn't happen. What the workers of the world did was they went to war for their nations. And so the Marxists, all of his followers, scratched their head and said they didn't understand. Because this was science. This was, this was inevitable. And it didn't happen. So they came together and they formed a think tank called the Frankfurt School in Frankfurt, Germany. In fact, they called it the Institute of Social Research because they, they wanted to fly under the radar. And these brilliant men came together to try to figure out why Marxism failed. Why didn't everybody just embrace it? 
and they studied it and started to study it. In any case, at the same time, Hitler came to power, and they had to flee Germany. So they came to America. And when they came to America, they saw capitalism up front. And they couldn't believe it. People were happy. In fact, one of them went to California and couldn't stand that everybody was happy and tried to figure out what do they have to do to break the back of capitalism. And they came up with this, that they had to shift from economic Marxism to cultural Marxism. That Marxism is based on conflict and oppression. You have the have and the have-nots. Marx treated it economically. They said it won't work because in capitalism, there's so much wealth being generated that even the worker can be wealthy. So economic Marxism won't work. So they came up with cultural Marxism. That there are still disadvantaged people in a capitalist society. What we need to do is unite the disadvantaged people against the capitalists. And so they shifted to cultural Marxism. And the guy who came up with this is a guy called Max Horkheimer, who was part of the Frankfurt School. They then brought in a guy called Theodore Adorno, who they say they worship this guy. Absolutely brilliant. These are brilliant people who are looking at our society and trying to figure out how to destroy it. Ultimately, Herbert Marcuse is the one that spearheaded cultural Marxism in America. And so beginning in the 30s, he developed something that he called critical theory. Critical theory and political correctness began in the 30s. Critical theory says we must criticize everything. Everything that has to do with the structure of Western civilization must be criticized. Political correctness basically says, and you can't criticize us. So they strike with critical theory, and they defend themselves with political correctness. You can't speak, because we're a minority. And so they gathered all the minorities. Women, you're being oppressed. That gave rise to feminism. Blacks, you're being oppressed. That gave rise to civil unrest. Hispanics, you're being oppressed. Civil unrest. Oh, homosexual, you're being oppressed. Rise of the gay movement. Oh, what about if you're transgendered? Oh, yeah, you're a minority. You're being oppressed. Transgenders must have rights. And then, of course, Islam, Muslims. It's not that they care about Islam. It's not that they even know what Islam is teaching. It's just that it's a mechanism to overthrow what they consider the privileged class. Because capitalism is supported by Christianity. And it's actually supported by the family. So in order to to destroy capitalism, we must destroy Christianity and we must destroy the family. And so critical theory and political correctness were born here. And then at this time, Freud came along and gave them good psychological language to introduce sexual perversion. And again, destroy the family. Everybody must be free. All of your uh, unbidden desires must be released as long as we're destroying the family and destroying Christianity. In the 60s, and he died in 1972, the disciple Saul Alinsky came along. And he came along in Chicago as a community organizer to to participate and, and, and empower these different minority groups into civil unrest. So Saul Alinsky 
was a disciple of Henry of Herbert Marcuse, and Barack Obama was a disciple of Saul Alinsky. So the community organizer was working in Chicago based on this Marxist philosophy. And so that's why during Barack Obama's tenure, we have the worst racial riots that we've had for, for decades. It's not that he's trying to unite, he's trying to disrupt, or he was trying to disrupt, that he did disrupt using this critical theory and cultural Marxism. And so now we come to the Women's March, where we're taking an American flag and using it as an article of clothing, and not just any article of clothing, a hijab. How preposterous. This is actually illegal. The flag must not be worn as, a, as an article of clothing. That dishonors the flag. It's against the law. And yet we have all these Americans taking an American, we have, you know, even have American men taking the American flag and wearing it as a hijab, which is a symbol of the oppression of women. So the women are out there marching. They want their rights. They destroy the honor of the American flag and everything it stands for, and they put it on themselves as a symbol of freedom when it's actually a symbol of their enslavement. And the only way that this is possible is because the society has been demoralized a process that began after World War I. And it's been decades in the making, gathering storm. It really uh, took off. The inflection point was the 60s. And every decade since then, our society has be, is being destroyed. And the key for them is the destruction of the Christian family. As long as the Christian family has influence, Marxism will not succeed. The only way Marxism can succeed is if we destroy the values taught by the Christian family. And that's what's happening now. Okay, and you can take that off. So, let's now look at marriage and family. Because that's what Marxism is set out to destroy. Whether it's economic Marxism or cultural Marxism. The state ultimately controls everyone. And the state will raise your children. And as long as you as a family are raising children, you're going to shape human minds in a way that we cannot control them. So we have to destroy the family. Let's look at Luke 2. Luke 2. And in verse 16, we see this remarkable statement that the shepherds came with haste and they found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. So God comes to earth and he comes through a nuclear family. He comes through the bond of a husband and a wife. This matters. So this family unit that Satan is trying to destroy actually matters. It shapes human lives. And the Savior is coming, and he comes to this strong bond, this strong... In fact, when Mary was found to be pregnant, and Joseph thought that she had committed illicit sex, 
he set about to protect her honor. That's what kind of man he was. That's the kind of love that he had for her. He didn't just think of himself. He immediately thought of her. And how can he protect her honor? So marriage matters to God. So does patriarchy. Look at Luke 3. And beginning in verse 24, we see the lineage of Christ. And we'll actually study this in the Bible study on Wednesday night this week or next week. Um, So I won't go through it now. But you'll see, so-and-so is the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so. And we see this patriarchy leading up to Christ. And so Marxists hate patriarchy. They have to overthrow patriarchy. And that's what this women's march is all about, is overthrowing patriarchy. And yet God loves patriarchy. What is it about patriarchy? What is it about marriage that matters so much? Let's go back to the beginning. We'll go to Genesis 1, and maybe I'll just ask if I can get a a glass of water. Genesis 1. Thanks, Daniel. And notice this in Genesis 1, verse 26. And God said, let us, that's God the Father and Jesus Christ, they're saying to one another, Let us make man in our image. So human beings are made in the image of God. And and notice that, that plural unity, that there's God the Father and Christ, and human beings are made in that image. Thank you. So there are two, and man is made in this image after our likeness. So once we're in the image of God, then what? Let them have dominion. So we're created to have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So there's this relationship that God the Father and Christ have and they say we're going to make man in that image. So relationship is at the core of who we are. God has dominion. And so in making this relationship, the man and his wife, he gives us dominion. This is part of bearing the image of God, and it's our very purpose to bear the image of God. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. We bear the image of God. In the image of God created he him, and then let's not read over this. Male and female created he them. I think sometimes we can read over that. I think we can, we, oh wow, I'm made in the image of God. I am made in the image of God. Me, the individual, I'm in the image of God. But that's not what the text says. The text says male and female together are the image of God. And male and female together are to have dominion. And in that relationship... Having dominion, we see God. This is a reflection of God. So marriage has everything to do with bearing the image of God. It's no wonder that Satan hates it so much. It's no wonder that his philosophies attack marriage and attack the family. 
And, and, you know, Christ came to Joseph and Mary and grew up with this bond in front of him. And our children in the same way should be shaped by this bond. They should see a husband and a wife together, working together, being one, and then they should be shaped by that. And that bond, that bond is created by their word. That when I marry a couple, one makes a vow to the other and vice versa. And it's that exchange of vows that binds them. Genesis 2. Genesis 2 and verse 18 shows us something else about marriage. Genesis 2 and verse 18, the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. So Adam was created before Eve, and he was by himself. And God's observation is, this isn't good. It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a help suitable for him. So this shows us something else about marriage. Marriage is not, oh, I want to feel good. Let me see if I can find me a wife so that I can feel good. That's not what marriage is. Marriage is very purposeful. There's a purpose that we have. And in order to fulfill that purpose, Adam was given help that's suitable to him. That together with his wife, they would be one and they could have purpose and fulfill that purpose. So marriage has purpose. If we drop down now to verse 23, Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother. So there's a husband and wife. They raise this child. The child comes to maturity. They've been shaped by this bond. And now they go out and they marry. And they shape the next generation. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, value her, not oppress her. Oppression was never part of God's design. He's going to cleave to her like his life depends upon her. And together they will be one flesh. So they're now a unit with purpose. And the purpose is to bear the image of God. We are designed in God's image. So when my wife and I become one and operate as one with purpose, we are reflecting the image of God. And then we raise the next generation to reflect the image of God. And to realize that alone they can't do it. That they need to find a help suitable to them and become one and raise the next generation. Unfortunately, chapter 3. Chapter 3 and verse 6 or verse 5. God, uh, Satan makes an offer to the woman, Eve, for God knows that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. So what we see here in the first interaction 
of Satan and human beings is that Satan appeals to self-interest. Satan appeals to self-interest. And the way that we resist deception is to not be self-interested, not be self- to, to subscribe to the purpose of God, which is always for others. When we serve God, we always serve others, not self. So when you come to me and say, Adrian, if you blow yourself up and help me kill people, I'll give you 72 virgins. That's not going to appeal to me because I'm not interested in myself. I'm interested in the people you want to blow up. I want to love them. I want to bless them. So why would I blow them up so that I can get something for myself? Well, this has been working since Eve. I'm going to promise you something. You'll benefit. And so you don't care about anybody else. But if we train, if if the marriage unit reflects the image of God, we're going to train the next generation to love others, to serve others. If this doesn't work, the next generation can be manipulated by the devil to, to act alone, to think of themselves. So here Eve succumbs in verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and I'll just add, Moses didn't write it here, but I'll just add, she saw that the tree was good for food for her. She wasn't thinking about us. She wasn't thinking, oh, this will bless future generations. She was thinking, that probably tastes good. I, I think I'll enjoy the experience, thinking of herself. And that it was pleasant to her eyes. She wasn't thinking of your eyes. She wasn't thinking of my eyes. It was pleasant to her eyes. She enjoyed the experience of looking at this. And it was a tree to be desired to make one wise. She wasn't thinking of us. Thinking of her herself, that she could be wise. She took of the fruit thereof and ate it. And then when she experienced that, then she sold it to her husband. Then she gave also unto her husband with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened. So at the very first marriage, we see failure. So they're to be in the image of God, acting with the purpose of God, and they failed. And now they're going to be the parents of subsequent generations. Genesis 6, where does all this lead? Genesis 6 and verse 1, it came to pass that men began to multiply on the face of the earth, so people are getting together and having children, and daughters were born unto them. That the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all they which they chose. So something was going on there, which is a perversion of the marriage bond. And it is obviously, again, in self-interest and about using the woman uh, for their pleasure. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he is also flesh. His days shall be a 120 years. And there were giants in those days. And uh, it says, dropping down to verse 5, God saw the wickedness of man, that it was great in the earth. So this is, where it all, this is where it was all leading. Man that was made in God's image, the marriage bond that should reflect God's image, the marriage bond that should be purposeful in shaping the next generation to reflect God's image, it's all failed. 
and we have now the catastrophe, the outcome of this, where men are just wicked, and every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, and it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart, and the Lord said, I'm going to destroy man whom I've created. That's how bad it got. That, okay, there's no point. This, the, the, the purpose of bearing God's image has been lost. So I'm now going to destroy man that I've created from the earth, both man and beast and creeping thing and the fowls of the air, and it repents me that I've made them. And then we start over with Noah. So there's a reboot. Okay, let's start over. Start over with Noah. Unfortunately, after the flood, we see Nimrod. And we see in Nimrod this totalitarian, expansionist, supremacist ideology. That in Nimrod we see, in fact, if we go to Genesis 11 uh, and verse 1, you'll see there that the whole earth shared the same ideology. What you should see there is that Nimrod basically slaughtered anybody who didn't agree with him. That's how you get the whole world to share one ideology. You threaten people and you destroy those who don't, who don't submit to you, which is again what we're seeing today, where the whole world is finally coming under one ideology. Okay. Let's go to Matthew 5. Matthew 5. We come now to Christ coming on the earth. And what is his perspective on marriage? What is his perspective on the importance of marriage? Again, human beings are made in the image of God. Human beings are born to women, at least so far. That's probably going to be changing soon. Uh, And God wants human beings born into a bond of marriage, a bond of purposefulness where they reflect God's image and they develop the next generation to reflect God's image. Matthew 5 and verse 31. Christ says, it has been said, whosoever shall put, his, put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorce. But I say to you that whosoever shall put away his wife, except for the cause of porneia, sexual immorality. So there is an exception. Except for the cause of porneia, he causes her to commit adultery. And we know that adultery is idolatry. And so this is a breaking of God's commandment. Causes her to commit adultery, and whosoever shall marry her that is divorced commits adultery. This is what God thought of marriage, or thinks of marriage. Again, you have heard that it's been said by them of old time, you shall not forswear yourself, but shall perform unto the Lord your oath. So there's a connection here between marriage, divorce, and oaths. So he immediately goes into oaths and says the the, the problem is our word. Is our word our bond? But I say to you, sorry, you've heard it said of old time, you shall not forswear yourself, but you shall perform unto the Lord your oaths. But I say to you, don't swear at all. Neither by heaven, for it's God's throne, nor by earth, for it's his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Neither shall you swear by your head, 
because you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your communication be yes, yes, no, no, for whatsoever more than these comes of evil. So to God, our word means everything. That when I make a promise to you, to not fulfill that promise is evil. And so when a man and a woman come together in the marriage vow, they must fulfill that bond to one another. That that bond must be airtight because human lives depend upon it. If the bond can be easily broken, if I just have to say to you, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, and you're gone, then human society is fragile. And, And the shaping of the next generation is they're vulnerable. God wants that bond to be solid. I've given you my word. I'm going to live and die by my word. Let us now look at this passage that Daniel read in Ephesians 5. To see God tell us in more detail about the marriage bond. And for me, I think everybody knows, uh, I grew up in a broken family. I would say a shattered family. And to this day, to this day, I see the devastating consequence, psychological consequences upon myself and my siblings. You know, praise God, I have the Holy Spirit, so I've been able to work through many issues. Uh, unfortunately, my siblings do not. And to this day, I just see like, wow. I can draw a direct line from the dysfunction in our lives today to what happened to us in a home where the marriage bond was not honored. And that's multiply that by the billions, and you kind of have a sense of what's going on in our world today. And I was always attracted to the gospel and the family message of the gospel. It always intrigued me. And, and I mentioned last week my wife's family and how healthy it is. And, and how I see God's image in the family, multiple generations. Today, her siblings are in their 50s and 60s. And everybody honors mom and dad. It's just this position of honor that they have. And four generations all understand the honor of that position. And that's what God wants multiplied billions of times over. But for me, when I came into the church and I'm told, pray to God, he's your loving father. Didn't compute. I, don't, I didn't know what a loving father was. So I'm kind of like trying to pray to God as my father, but I, I don't understand it because I've never had that. And so destroying the family destroys the relationship that men and women can have with God as a loving father. Instead, they come up with these kind of warped concepts of God as this tyrant because that's all they've ever known. Ephesians 5 and verse 1 be you therefore followers of God as dear children. Family relationship. We can't really be followers of God as dear children if we don't know what it's like to be in a family that thinks children are dear. What's it, what's it like to be in a family where mom and dad will do anything for you? Where mom and dad sacrifice for you because you're, you're, you're valued? Well, if you've never had that, you can't relate to God. And walk in love. People have trouble thinking of associating love with God. 
walk in love as Christ also has loved us and has given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. This has everything to do with marriage. The us is Israel. And Christ married Israel. And he gave his vow to Israel. And because of that vow, he has now come into the world and sacrificed himself to redeem Israel. But fornication and all uncleanness and covetousness, let it not be once named among you as become saints. So Satan wants us to engage in these behaviors because they destroy family. Verse 5, for this you know, no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of Christ and God. So they want us to participate in these behaviors. This women's rights march, it's basically saying, I want to fornicate freely. No one's going to tell me what to do. It's, it's, a, it's railing against marriage. And again, this began in the 1930s. The design of Henry Herbert Marcuse and, and Hank Horkheimer and, and Theodore uh, Adorno. All of these guys with their brilliant thinking, it was to inject immorality into society and to have human beings raising the next generation with no clue of what marriage is and injecting perversion and immorality into the next generation. And we are all victims of this. We have all been born into a society that was orchestrated and designed by the Frankfurt School, the think tank, these brilliant designers and intellects who, by the way, I didn't mention, they were they... What they, the access that they had to our society was the universities. Because they were intellects, they got into the university system right across America, every single university. And they started to inject into the curriculum women's studies, gay studies, uh, black studies, all to inject this civil disobedience and resistance to authority. God wants us to understand authority. God wants us to love authority. And God wants us to understand how to be in authority lovingly. That the man and his wife reflect the image of God and they were given dominion with that image. That dominion is a loving dominion. That dominion is a cooperative dominion. It's been perverted. Now when we hear dominion, we think of a Nimrod type of dominion, which is oppression, which is what Marx was railing against. You know, stop crushing people. And so I'm going to come up with this communist theory, which makes everybody equal. Oh, except that it doesn't. Because we need big government to implement this. And then somebody's got to be in charge of that government. And when they are, watch out. In fact, I don't know if you heard of William, William Alexander Morgan. He's American born in Cleveland, Ohio who was basically brought up, he, he was just a bad, bad seed, just a very wayward child, ended up going to Cuba and getting caught up in the Cuban Revolution. And he fought for Fidel Castro. And this was finally when his life started to make sense. These people wanted to be free, and he wanted to help them. 
And so even though he couldn't speak a word of Spanish, he got right in there and, and he was brave. He was courageous. He had purpose. And so he floated to the top and actually became second in command. And then, you know, uh, they, they won. They, they beat, I think his name was Batista. Uh, so Fidel Castro won. And they asked him, like, so, so now what? And he's like, oh, I just want to serve the people. You know, all, all I wanted, I just, I want the people to be free. Meanwhile, he was talking to communist Russia and implementing socialism. And this William Alexander Morgan, who fought so hard and risked everything for him, basically lined him up and shot him. That's, that's socialism. That's this like, oh yeah, all, everyone's going to be equal. And then became a dictator over Cuba for how many decades? And when he died, Justin Trudeau said he was an honorable man. So we have this kind of leftist thinking who present themselves wonderfully. They smile, they say all the right things, and they are totalitarian. They are brutal. Here now, we see in Ephesians 5, verse 21, how should we approach authority? Well, Scripture tells us, submitting yourselves to one another in the fear of God. We're made in God's image. It's not a totalitarian dictatorship. It's a mutual agreement. It's, it's an understanding, and there's mutual agreement. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands. It doesn't say women submit to men. It says wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Not to all men, but there's a relationship here. Submit yourselves to your own husbands as unto the Lord. So, so there's something about authority here. The Lord has authority. And the woman in the marriage should submit herself to her husband as if she was submitting to the authority of the Lord. Why? Because the husband is the head of the wife. So the husband together with the wife form one body. But the husband is the head and the wife is the body. Does that insult you? Because it would insult many, many women. But this is the reality of the design. Even as Christ is the head of the church. So if we have a problem with the wife submitting to the husband, what we're saying is we have a problem with Christianity. Because I want to be in the church, but I don't want anybody telling me what to do. And definitely not Christ. As opposed to coming into the church and saying, I trust my Lord. I will do whatever he asks. Because I know he loves me. He loves me so much that he, gave, he was brutalized for me. To redeem me. I trust him. And so the wife now must reflect this same perspective in her marriage. He's the savior of the body. Therefore, the same way the church submits to the authority of Christ, so let the wives submit to the authority of their own husbands and everything. It feels strange reading this text. In our society today. This, this seems bizarre. But this is what they set out to destroy. 
beginning in the 1930s. That this has to be destroyed in order for Marxism to gain any ground in our society. And so here we are today. They've done a wonderful job because this seems bizarre. That the way the church is subject to Christ is the way the wives should be subject to their husbands in everything. Well, how can that be? Well, verse 25 shows us. Husbands love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church. So there's no oppression here. Husbands, be willing to sacrifice everything for your wife. Be willing to be brutalized and even be put to death for your wife. So if you have this perspective as a husband, the wife is totally safe submitting herself to you. Totally safe. Because you have her best interests at heart. Satan comes to you and says, oh, this can make you wise. You don't think like that. You think, well, what will this do for my wife? I'm not going to take something that's going to harm my wife. And then he says, well, well, it's good for you and your wife. Okay, well, we have a purpose. What will this do for future generations? So I'm not just making decisions today. Look, if these carnal guys, uh, granted, they're intellects. So they're intellects. So they're smart, smart people. But they're carnal. If they can gather together as a think tank and say, we need to put wheels in motion. We need to plant seeds that we will never enjoy the fruit of these seeds. Future generations will be able to implement the totalitarian system that we want to see implemented. But it's going to take decades. If they can think like that, is it possible for us to think in decades? Is it possible for us to make decisions today to say, I won't be alive to enjoy this, the fruit of this decision? But future generations will benefit from these decisions. Future generations will benefit from the sacrifices that we make today. The, the community that we're building today, ultimately when it matures, we won't be here. But future generations will benefit from the strength of this community and the values of this community. And they'll be able to withstand competing agendas. But unfortunately, Freud and Marcuse and Eric Fromm, they've worked so hard to get us to think individualistically and to take the fruit that will make us wise, to think in terms of our own benefit. When Satan's children can think decades in advance, and they're benefiting today. Their descendants, their spiritual descendants, you know, Barack Obama got into office and, and had a free hand because of the work that Hank uh, Horkheimer did in 1930, in the 1930s. So I think we just got to change the way we think and think like this. Husbands, love your wives the same way Christ loved the church. And gave himself for it. That's how we love our wives. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. That he might present it to himself a glorious church. Notice this, brethren. Christ didn't come and sacrifice himself for Israel just for fun and games. 
He came for Israel to redeem Israel for a purpose. So that through Israel, all the families of the earth would be blessed through the promise that he made to Abraham. So the marriage to Israel is a marriage of purpose. And he sacrifices himself for the church for purpose. And in the same way, our marriages are for purpose. And we sacrifice ourselves, men, for our wives for purpose. Understanding that together we reflect the image of God. And that's the very purpose of our creation. That anything short of that is sin. We fall short of the glory of God. Anything short of that is idolatry. We're worshiping another God. And so we strive to build this successful bond. Or if we're not in a marriage, maybe we're divorced. Maybe we're widowed. But we're part of a community that believes in this marriage. And so we do what we can to contribute to other marriages. To contribute to children, young people, that they can understand marriage. Everybody has a stake in this whether we're married or not. That he might present it to himself a glorious church with purpose, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that it should be wholly set aside and without blemish. In the same way, men ought to love their wives as their own bodies. So the man is the head, the wife is the body. Christ is the head, the church is the body. He that loves his wife loves himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, even as the Lord the church. The, the Lord nourishes the church, the Lord cherishes the church. That's, how, that's the relationship we must have, men, husbands with our wives. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause, quoting Genesis, where we were before, for this cause, there's a purpose Because of the purpose, a man will leave his father and mother and will be joined to his wife, and the two shall be one. The two shall be one. Male and female, he created us. In his image, he created us. The man and the woman become one. Church and the Christ become one. The Messiah marries the church and the church becomes one with the Messiah for purpose. So our marriages are reflecting this great purpose. Nevertheless, verse 33, let's not get into, oh, sorry, verse 32. This is a great mystery, but I'm telling you, I'm speaking concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Immediately after this, we go into chapter 6. So there should be no chapter break. It's the same thought. And then he starts talking about children, obey your parents. Parents, love your children. Servants, obey your masters. Masters, respect your servants. It's all the same thing. That when the husband and wife come together in godly unity, respecting each other, honoring each other, reflecting the image of God, they produce human beings who understand authority. Who understand Christ-like authority. Not Nimrod-like authority. Not oppressive authority. Loving authority. And because they understand loving authority, they can obey their parents. 
They can respect their parents. They can honor their parents. They can grow up and get a job. And they can respect their employer. And the employer, who was once a child, who grew up in the same kind of relationship, can understand I don't abuse my employees. I respect, I honor my employees. And so everywhere, unlike what Marx believed, everywhere those in authority can come together with those under authority and be as one. Because those in authority have been shaped with a Christ-like mind. And those under authority have been shaped with a church-like mind. And so Christ and the church reflect the image of God, which is loving authority. They were given dominion. That's authority. But they were given it together so that it would be loving authority, an authority based on relationship. Let me now, the final part I want to discuss with you, are the implications of marriage and how it should inform our behavior. Revelation 19. And verse 5. And a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God. So now we're getting to the end of this age. This, this crazy age where Satan has deceived the whole world. Now God is acting. Praise our God, all you his servants, and you that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent, omnipotent reigns. We see here authority. And it's praiseworthy authority. It's time to rejoice. The loving authority is now in place. Not the dictatorial, harsh, Nimrod-type authority, Babylonian authority. Loving authority. Finally, loving authority. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him who has dominion over us lovingly. Let's give honor to him for the marriage of the Lamb is come and his wife has made herself ready. She understands authority. She understands how to be under authority, and she understands how to be in authority. And now she is made one with her husband, and they will have dominion over all creation. And that dominion will be a blessing to all creation. Because from the beginning, it was meant to reflect the image of God. And so we will now release mankind from this bondage that we see all over the world. Verse 9, he says to me, write, so this is what John had to write. These are true words. Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. If you and I get to participate in this marriage supper, we are blessed. But this is all about understanding authority. This is all about being able to submit to godly authority. And it's all about being able to implement godly authority. Whether you're the husband or the wife, whether you're the parent or the child, whether you're the employer or the employee, whatever role you're in, 
you need to understand, and I need to understand, loving authority. So that we can actually now join with Christ, understanding this, and implement it all over the world. Because marriage is not for fun and games, it's for purpose. And the husband and wife together are one for purpose. Mark 10. So that's the end game. That's where we're heading. Mark 10. The disciples got a glimpse of this. Mark 10 and verse 32. And they were in the way going up to Jerusalem. Remember, Christ is going to be crucified in Jerusalem. They're on their way going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus went before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. And he took again the twelve and began to tell them what things should happen unto him. So he was very careful to make sure that he's fulfilling the prophecies. And he needs to be now brutalized and crucified in Jerusalem. So he's sharing with them what's going to happen as he enters Jerusalem. Saying, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests, those in authority. So those who in authority are resisting the godly authority rather than welcoming it. And unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles. So even though they're Jews, they're going to deliver him to the Gentiles, a brother. And they shall mock him, and shall scourge him, and shall spit upon him, and shall kill him. And the third day, according to the scriptures, he will rise again. And that's the triumph. And we'll talk about that as we approach Passover. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. So, okay, we get it. You're going to rise again. Great. We didn't really hear a word about what you're going to suffer, but we did hear you're going to rise again and you're going to be king. Master, we would that you should do for us whatever we shall desire, whatever we shall desire. And he said to them, what would you that I should do for you? They said to him, grant us that we may sit in authority, one on your right hand and the other on your left hand in your glory. But Jesus said unto them, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink of the cup that I drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? In other words, can you suffer what I'm about to suffer? And they said unto him, we can. And Jesus said unto them, you shall indeed drink the cup that I drink. And so every Passover, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. And we drink this cup to say that as Christians, if we have to suffer like Christ, we will suffer like Christ because we believe in him and we believe in the truth of his word. So they shall indeed, in other words, they are going to be crucified. But to sit on my, verse 40, to sit on my right hand and on my left in authority with me, that's not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. So it is an office that human beings are going to hold this office with Christ. But Christ is saying it's prepared for particular people. And in fact, those people are being prepared for that office. So we are being prepared for our offices. And it's all about understanding loving authority, marital authority, family authority. We can't just be in authority without this training, this understanding. And so 
When the other ten heard it, verse 41, they began to be very angry with James and John. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. That's what happens. This is how everybody understands authority. If I'm in charge, I'm your Lord. And I tell you exactly what to do and when to do it and how to do it. And don't ask me any questions. Just do as I say. They exercise lordship over them. And their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so, in this way, shall it not be among you. You are the wife, or you're going to become the wife of Christ, of the Messiah. You're going to be in a marriage relationship. You've got to understand loving authority. It can't be this way among you. But whosoever will be great among you shall be your servant. So, so whoever's going to be your leader is actually going to be your servant, who's going to sacrifice for you, who's going to nourish and cherish you the way Christ nourishes and cherishes the church. And whoever of you will be the chiefest shall be the servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. So this is how those in, and this is the beginning of the kingdom of God, this is how those in the kingdom of God operate. It's not in self-interest. It's not, oh, look at that fruit. It, I, I'm enjoying this experience. I, just, I feel good when I look at this. Oh, if I eat it, I can be wise. It's not that at all. It's, it's I have a duty of care. And every decision I make is about how I benefit those under my purview, not how I dominate and rule over them. And so this is what we have to learn in order to be prepared to reign with Christ and bring this loving authority to the whole world. Now, and and it all starts with the husband and wife. This verse, or this passage, cannot be read by itself. It needs to go with the complementary passage. If we look at 1 Timothy 5, First Timothy 5, verse 17. So the elders who are put in authority, they, we have to be servants. It's not for us to exercise authority. But those under authority need to be like the wife that honors her husband. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word And doctrine, because that's what nourishes you. That's what gives you eternal life. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox that treads out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. And then it goes on not to receive an accusation. Uh, Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13. And verse 17. Again, this this goes with part 10. So those in authority, be servants. Those under authority, verse 17, obey them that have the rule over you. It's like the wife. Submit and submit yourselves. Why? Because they watch for your souls. 
as they must give account, as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, that's unprofitable for you. If the marriage relationship doesn't work, then both parties, I don't want to say, I was going to say are cursed. Maybe they are, but I'd say both parties, well, let me just say it, are cursed. Rather than being blessed, both parties are cursed. And so this marriage relationship has everything to do with shaping the mind to understand loving authority so that we can function in every capacity with this godly perspective, especially when it comes to our role within the church. Let's conclude, brethren, in Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45. We are living in a society today that is doing everything it can to destroy the Christian marriage and destroy the Christian family. You want to uh, pray to Christ in the church? Oh, we couldn't possibly have that. We have to separate church from state. We just have to do that. Oh, you're a Muslim. Oh, no, we absolutely, you must pray in the school. We'll actually, we'll have a room just for you. How is this possible? You know, you, you want to uh, teach abstinence and, and sexual loyalty? Oh, couldn't possibly. That's so archaic and Victorian. You want to teach homosexuality and transgenders? Oh, come on in. You want to teach that white lives matter? That's racist. You want to teach that black? Oh, yes, absolutely black lives matter. Everything that is against Christian conduct and Christian authority and structure is being supported today. And we have to make the decisions today, realizing this battle is not going to be won today or tomorrow. This is a battle until Christ returns, which may not be for decades. So we need to be fighting on behalf of generations yet to come so that a people yet to be born will be able to praise God faithfully. And so everything that we're doing here in building a community that is loving, building a community that is safe, building a community that is considerate and courteous, it's not for us, even though we benefit from it. It's for people yet to come, who once the culture is set and they come into a healthy culture, they can be healed. They can come to understand God as a father. What do you mean? God is a loving father? I don't understand. I just know a father that beats people up and brutalizes them. And now you're telling me to get on my knees and pray to a loving father? Does not compute. But if I can see you, and I can see your families and your community, oh, I'm beginning to get it. That bond upon which everything depends is the marriage bond. And we're made in God's image. And that, that um, saying, dictum, meum, pactum, is Latin. And it means, my word is my bond. I am bound, and Dylan knew that. <laughs> I am bound. I, I am in chains because of my word. I gave you my word. To my wife I said, I do. Till death do us part. I am now bound. I can do what I want. 
if I want, I can walk out of my marriage and be a fool. Nobody has a gun to my head. But I am bound by my word. And my children grow up in a family where what the, the glue that keeps my wife and I together, that they observe as they grow up, is the word, the promise that we made to each other. And this is why, brethren, no matter what happens, we know we have a faithful God. Because he's married to Israel. And his word is his bond. Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45 and verse 22. Look unto me and be you saved. This is salvation. The reason you can be saved is you serve a God that cannot lie. It's impossible. His word is his bond. Look unto me. And be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none else. I have sworn by myself. He's made a vow. I have sworn by myself. The word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return. God's word is his bond. And what is his word? Here it is. That unto me every knee shall bow. Every knee will recognize this loving authority. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear. We're made in the image of God. That means that this saying means everything to us. Dictum, meum, pactum. My word is my bond. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.